to episode 137 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 2nd of August 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Ciao. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. So let's just get straight into it then. For first impressions, we've been looking at Bodhi Linux. This is what they describe as a lightweight distribution featuring the Moksha desktop. This is a fork of enlightenment, of course. Now, Let's just get this out of the way to start with. The aesthetic is very much Leap Gamer from 15 years ago. <laughs> I have some trainers that look like this in the uh, early 2000s. It's certainly got a look, hasn't it? It's, uh, I mean, it just is that sort of ricer, early noughties or mid noughties, like gamer aesthetic, which some people must love, I suppose. If people haven't seen it, it's all kind of green highlights, green and grey, a bit like, I suppose, kind of a green old tube monitor from back in the day, but and with monochrome green and grey icons as well. Although it is easy to switch to another theme, which I think is included, which is more standard colours. It's interesting that the screenshot that they've got on their website shows an Inspiron 530, which has a Core 2 Duo, because this is a lightweight distro. It's based on Ubuntu, so you've got all of the, the goodness that you get with Ubuntu, the software repositories and everything, but it is very lightweight. I actually tried this on a real laptop. I had friends staying, and I've got an old Sony Vio. I don't never know how to say that. Um, it's got two, three gig of RAM, um, and I think an i3. And I did try and install... Kubuntu on it. But as this came up, I thought, well, I was going to donate the laptop and I put Bode Linux on it. And yes, it, it really does work well on older hardware in a way that modern desktops can't or it's difficult to, mainly, I think, because of the RAM. Um, and it was it was a really nice native experience. And I on the same hardware, Kubuntu didn't work half as well. It took an awful lot of t- long time to boot and an awful long time to install software and do anything. Um, so it, I was really impressed with the low the low resource usage part of that. Yeah, aesthetics aside, I found it ran very quickly, very smoothly. And the thing I really liked about it was the app store in the browser idea. I thought that was really interesting. Rather than spend uh, time and energy building an app store app on the desktop, they just stuck it in the browser. And in there are links to like apt colon slash slash whatever name uh links and so you can browse the store in the uh in the browser click the link and it will throw you into the package manager to install the package i really like that see i didn't like that i didn't like it at all it reminded me of the windows days now obviously i know what it's doing and it's fine but instinctively it just made me feel uncomfortable to click a link on a website, albeit just a, a local HTML page, or whatever. But just it feels like you're going to a website, clicking a link, and then putting in your root password, and then it installs software. Just something about that experience did not sit well with me. Totally irrational, but I just didn't like it. I appreciate the efficiency inherent in doing it that way, where you don't have somebody maintaining an enormous heavy app all the time i thought uh, it's an elegant solution i see where you're coming from though well yeah and to be fair to them they also include synaptic package manager which is my software gui of choice it is super lightweight super bare bones just does the bare minimum that i want it to and so you've got the choice and i would definitely choose synaptic over the uh, the browser-based one 
Going back to the theme, I do think the theme kind of kills it. And I did actually go back to installing Kubuntu on the laptop when our friends came over and they were moving from Windows. Um, and it was just, it was just too difficult a hurdle to cross to expect them to start using Linux and start understanding a UI from the nineties. <laughs> I didn't find the alternative one that shipped with it. I didn't find that any better either. Mm. Uh, mm. I did try it, but yeah, it. It didn't. It didn't make it any better. So in the end, I got suspend and resume working, um, and just told them never to reboot the machine. <laughs> <laughs> Failing, obviously, you hated this because it's not KDE. Yeah, and there was a few weird things I found about it. Like the mouse pointer in the installer points to the right. Oh yeah, that was mm, just uh, like why? Why does it do that? There was no English for Ireland, which, you know, you can claim is regional or not, but it means things like fathers on ease, like my name would technically not be correct. And I found that after the first restart, the installer crashed. It was like, I had sent a message on VT1 saying to, you know, remove media, but I had no idea what was going on. It just, it, it sat there on the machine I was using and a black screen for ages. And I just thought, okay, I don't know what's going on here. And the scaling was set to 1.2 yeah. for some unknown reason. Like, I just don't get it. Because, I mean, I wasn't even using it on a high DPI machine. It was just set to 1.2 for no apparent reason. But that scaling does work really well. I tried it on my 27-inch monitor. Uh, the laptop I was plugged in, into was only capable of driving it at 1080p. So I couldn't properly experience it. But I tried a couple of different scales and it all seemed to work perfectly, which is more than you can say for some Linux desktops. So I think that's a big plus for it. Yeah, I found that it installed really easily. I didn't have any problems with it. It was uh, the default Ubuntu desktop installer, I think. But it detected the disks, it installed, it rebooted. I got all the messages in the right place. It just worked as far as installation goes, which on my laptop is quite an achievement. Yeah, I think that being based on Ubuntu, standing on the shoulders of giants and all that, means that you do get all of the benefits or a lot of the benefits of that. And they are then free to concentrate on their lovely theme and their own desktop and its various usability, which it is a different way of doing things, isn't it? Like the, the way you configure it. It's it's kind of almost a little bit KDE-ish, I find, like with the desktop widgets and stuff. Take that back. <laughs> no, I won't take it back. It reminded me of that, how like you set it into like moving widgets around mode or gadgets, I think they call them. And then once you're done, you take it out of that mode, which is the same as Plasma, isn't it? Well, if you compare it to something that has features like KDE, yes, they are the same. But just because XFC doesn't have any features you're thinking that everything looks like that. Well, maybe, maybe. But it is configurable, but not overly configurable. It feels like it's just right to me. You can put the panel wherever you want it. You can arrange whatever you want on that panel, but you don't get just lost in options, I found. I found there are a couple of weird things about it. The keyboard shortcuts were one of the more noticeable ones. I was used to Control-Alt-T opening a terminal, but in this, it set the window to be always on top or something like that. Um, and so I went digging through the control panel to find out how to change the keyboard mappings, and I found that to be a bit more involved than I was expecting. It was there, and I could have changed it, but um, some of the sort of defaults were weird to me. Yeah, I, I was a bit confused by the fact that the right click seemed to just flash the pointer blue on the screen. 
or green, I think, in the default or the Moxka team. And then I managed to look at the documentation, which is quite good, to be honest. And that said that that would bring up your favorites. So yeah, I mean, it's just really different. This seems like a small thing, but I really love the clock situation. By default, it was on the desktop, which I didn't want. I wanted it in the panel in the bottom right where it belongs. And it took me a few seconds to work out how to do that. I wanted to configure it in a different way to the default. And it just did everything I expected. Like, I, I think I right click. I can't even remember what I did. I think there was right clicking involved. There was moving things around, dragged it down, and it just appeared, boom, in the corner, this cool clock. And it was not set to 24 hours by default. So then I went into the options and then ticked that and got it all right. Again, it just, it feels like, Whatever you want to do. Like, I wanted to get rid of the virtual desktops, for example. Again, that was just right-click on it, got into the options. You can have, like, some crazy grid of, like, 128 desktops or whatever, or you can just slide the thing down, get one, like I like it, then get rid of the uh, the widget on the desktop, done. Forget about it. It did seem to me, like, just whatever I wanted to do with it, I could do it, and it was pretty instinctive. I didn't have to look at the documentation much at all. That said, on an... Intel only. I mean, it's a second-gen Intel laptop. It's pretty old at this point. But any sort of videos, YouTube and stuff, it was just screen tearing to the max. And this is coming from an XFCE user. Like this, it was just like unbearable screen tearing. So that wasn't great. Yeah, I did test YouTube on my uh, test laptop, which must be a similar generation to that, but didn't have any problems. So maybe that is a driver issue. Yeah, maybe. I think I was quite impressed by Bode Linux. I wasn't expecting much, but actually it delivered on the speed and lightweight footprint. Um, I'd love to see a more professional kind of theme to it. Um, and I'd definitely look at it again. Yeah, I'm thinking that maybe I should have a look at this on old 32-bit hardware. I'm not hopeful, not massively hopeful, because I've tried MX Linux and again, the desktop's fine, but then running any applications is where you just get into the point mm. where it's just not not going to work. But I, I wasn't aware necessarily of Bodhi being lightweight. I just thought it was just a different paradigm or whatever. But this has got me curious now to try it on lower end hardware, like really old hardware, and see exactly what it could do. Maybe it could be that disk drive that is right for the super low-end hardware that you want to give to someone and maybe start looking for a theme because clearly you can theme it any way you want and I'm sure you'll be able to find those themes somewhere on the internet. There are loads, actually. There are loads online. I was just browsing them just as we spoke. Right. So there are some much more kind of professional ones that other people would be used to themes to use. Yeah, well, there you go. So, yeah, I th think this is one of those just drives that's... Uh, I'm glad people recommended it because I, I just had sort of dismissed it as being Enlightenment, which it's forked from and just wasn't very interested. But now I, it's, it's on my radar firmly, I think. Right, so let's find out what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks then. Let's spin the wheel. Here we go. The Wheel of Mess, spinning wheelofnames.com. Check it out. It's actually a really good site. Oh, what have we got? What have we got? We've got, ah, the wildcard, fosterdon.org. So this was suggested that we try it out. So this is a Mastodon instance that is geared towards FOSS, as the name would suggest. So it's a case of checking out Mastodon, really, and seeing what it's like. So there is, I read recently, a new official client for iOS. So you could try that out, Will, or you can just try it on the web. Because people have said, I can't remember who suggested it, but someone said that you should try it out and... Uh, I think it'd be a, a bit of a change of pace from looking at distros. 
Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more about it, latenightlinux.com slash support. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Let's do some feedback then. Bill and quite a lot of other people pointed out that when it comes to sync thing, there is an iOS client called Mobius Sync, and he says it's pretty cheap and it works well. Now, my understanding is that it is free to download and install and use up to a certain data transfer, and then you've got to start paying for it. I did install it very briefly. Uh, The UI needs some work. It feels like an application designed and built by engineers rather than a traditional iPhone application, which has had a lot of, hmm, that's perhaps over-egging it a little bit, but, you know, iPhone applications have a particular look and feel about them, and this does not use the same widget set, and it looks a little bit clunky. But I will try it out and see how I get on. Fair enough. So Josh said, SyncThing has no reliance on third parties, neither BitTorrent-like public DHT nor the coordination servers hosted by SyncThing themselves. These are indeed the default options. However, my shares have zero packets going anywhere except those bound for intra-wireguard traffic. SyncThing allows one to disable per share whether DHT and centralized introduction are enabled. And then he talks about how to do it. Um, and he says that he's been running in this mode for about 18 months across laptop, server, and phone. And SyncThing has required manual intervention rarely, only for same file conflict resolution and the even more rare Windows Linux file name illegalities misaligning. Never has peering been an issue in the absence of third parties. So yeah, we didn't make it 100% clear on the show that you can disable that stuff, but it is on by default, and I think defaults are king. So that's why we kind of concentrated on it. Jimmy wrote in and said that in the previous episodes, you were discussing use cases of SyncThing versus Nextcloud. I have for quite some time been running KeePassX Password Manager for an encrypted VeraCrypt container across my devices. However, the Achilles heel of this solution is having to manually copy the VeraCrypt container to my devices whenever passwords are updated. This becomes a real pain over time with just a handful of devices. This nearly pushed me away from KeePassX until I heard you guys talking about SyncThing. I have deployed it for local discovery only to avoid anything leaving my home network. Took literally 15 minutes to set up on all my devices. 
Yeah, and this is just a sample of the feedback we got about Sync Thing. It turns out that our audience fucking loves it, man. Like, there's so much enthusiasm for it, and I can totally understand why. Failing, you're just wrong, man. Yeah. I'm happy to be wrong, but I'm still right. <laughs> it seems to just come down to use cases, doesn't it? And I think that's kind of the conclusion we came to a couple of weeks ago, was that sometimes Nextcloud makes a lot of sense, but other times Sync Thing just makes more sense. Yeah, I mean, I the file share thing of Nextcloud is not my major feature for it. I mean, it's all the other stuff that I use it for. And you, you're using CalDAV and all that stuff, aren't you? Yeah, CalDAV, CardDAV, uh, even as a front end to email for certain stuff for webmail. Um, yeah, I just I have no real need for a. I don't want all the same files and all the same machines. I, I like the way Nextcloud allows me to pick just an odd few files that I want download to my phone as well, or synced a lot you know so you can do that with sync thing but i think when you're looking at that level of granularity probably nextcloud makes more sense yeah but i think that if you only look into sync files then nextcloud is massively overkill especially in recent times when they've just keep adding more and more features to it yeah probably is yeah and plugins and it, it just like you talked about graham like you run it on this ancient box that wasn't capable of running nextcloud yeah, and it was just the best way that I could find to get files across to a couple of places at the same time. Yeah, this is just a typical Linux and open source case, isn't it, where there are overlapping methods of achieving the same result, depending on exactly which angle you want to come at it from. So Campbell Barton writes into us, I was surprised to not hear feedback regarding your comments about GitHub Copilot replacing human developers. Even assuming it can complete code blocks or entire functions, as a developer, you will still need to know which algorithm to use in the first place. Many problems in software are caused by interactions between moving parts, auto-completing, what you type won't help in these cases, nor will it help in tracking down existing bugs. In short, I'm not worried about this. If it helps at all, it could save on typing. There's a world of us, people like me, that can never remember the syntax for a for loop. <laughs> So <laughs> this stuff's going to be really useful for me. And I think it's, this is the first step as well. Yeah, someone like Campbell, who's such an experienced developer, he doesn't need help with that stuff. But occasional developers or tinkerers or whatever you want to call people like you, Graham, th that's surely who it's aimed at right now. But they're going to get the practice on you to eventually come after Campbell long term. Yeah, I think so. But I was a bit surprised that we didn't hear that much from people about it there was a little bit of chatter in the telegram group and stuff but not that many developers seem to be that worried about it maybe they should be a bit more worried about it i don't know i mean i've i've spoken to the developers that i work with and they were the same no they're not worried similar to campbell's point it's just so far off being professional grade code for all kinds of reasons that they don't see it as a threat but at least maybe from the outside point of view from like i've said it's like it's an impressive first step i think I would be worried. Well, maybe worried isn't the right word, but... Keeping an eye on it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's sort of like with audio editing. Now there's AI that can do that to a certain extent, but I'm mm. not worried because they won't be able to do it as well as I can. No computer can take my job. And that's what everyone thinks, don't they? Automation won't take my job. But then suddenly you're fucking on the dole and like, oh, shit. Maybe they can use GitHub Copilot to write a anti-AI piece of software that destroys Copilot from the inside out. Maybe, yeah. Maybe people should be sneaking that into their repos. It's not enough to just have bad code like you did, Will. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, an article linked in the Overspill newsletter this morning, I think, or maybe it was 
last week. I can't remember. Anyway, it was talking about how during the early days of COVID, it was thought that AI would be a really great tool in being able to diagnose people coming into hospital with having COVID or not. And of the very many experiments they did, AI was proven to be useless in most cases. So I using that example makes me think that there is still quite a long way to go and that the robots aren't quite ready to take our jobs yet. But it is probably only a matter of time. Yeah, I saw that on Slashdot. I only read the headline. But yeah, hundreds of AI tools were built to catch COVID. None of them helped. <laughs> but I always come back to unexpected item in the bagging area mm. and how that crept up on us. And suddenly that replaced a lot of jobs in retail. It's still utter shit, though. Take your bag out of this packing area. Well, I don't have a fucking bag there. <laughs> that just makes you doing it wrong. You're just an idiot. If, if you ever, <laughs> ever have it say unexpected item in the bagging area, you are an idiot who's done it wrong. Or a thief. Or, or oh, you've bought something that has to be allowed with the magic key and password. Oh, look at me. Fucking <laughs> piss off. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills? Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. Steve has written in, and he's come up with a number of questions, but um, as a bit of a preamble, he says, given that Microsoft is doing an Apple and saying that my expensive hardware is now obsolete and will not support Windows 11, I was wondering whether this is a good time for you to do an explainer for people thinking about leaving Windows and moving to Linux. I would appreciate some nice explanations in a friendly way. And then the first question he has is this. I try to use as many cross-platform apps as possible already, for example, Firefox, Audacity, VLC. But the apps that are proprietary and that I paid for, will they actually work using Wine? For example, Photoshop Elements, Serif Affinity Photo, Skylum Luminar. I have a great Blu-ray ripper called Make MKV, which I guess won't work. Well, make MKV, pretty sure that does work. I'm pretty sure that was an open source Linux package to, to begin with, was it not? You might be right. Certainly it was made commercial. And if I remember correctly, they've kept the Linux binaries available for free. And so there are native Linux binaries for that. I've used the same thing to put a copy of Blade Runner on uh, my hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't you forget any synth <laughs> uh, Other stuff. I think your mileage may vary is the answer, and you've got to just look up individual applications and see what people are saying about it. Yeah, and in fact, there's a great wine database that does exactly that and rates uh, compatibility you know, with a, a bronze, silver, and gold rating. Um, so that's a good indication of how well something will work. Yeah, and if you look for the application wine and your specific distro, like Ubuntu 20.04 or whatever, then you'll get also people discussing it probably on forums and stuff. 
Yeah, but the downside of that is you'll also Google does such and such work on wine, and what you'll get is a three-long explanation about why you're wrong to want to use that in the first place and what you should actually be using. <laughs> Is something entirely yeah. different. So, yeah, just mind where you go. Yeah. I think if you have got a spare laptop or partition or even a VM, maybe, although that's a little bit hit and miss, then just try it. And what's the worst that can happen? It doesn't work. If you can get hold of an old laptop, and yeah, it might be really slow or whatever, but at least you'll know whether it's going to work, whether you're going to have weird graphical glitches and stuff. So not everyone has that luxury to have a pile of deck and old laptops next to them like I do. But if you do have access to one, then give it a go. All right. Good advice. On to his next question then. I also run a Hackintosh as I'm using Logic Pro for making music, dual booting with Windows. I currently use an XFAT drive to share files between macOS and Windows. Could I do a similar thing with Linux? And then he carries on for his third question, which is related. Also, my main data drives are NTFS. How could that work? Would I have to reformat everything? I would like to dual boot with Windows, at least in the medium term, until I can get comfortable with Linux, especially as I'm so used to Windows software for backups. And the answer to that is that XFAT and NTFS are going to work fine with Linux. You can read and write to it, no problem. You can have a disk that is shared between the two of them. Windows is not going to see your Linux drives unless you start pissing around with drivers and software specifically to do it. But NTFS has worked for a long time in Linux. And also, just as an aside, um, APFS on the Hackintosh, if that's what uh, he's using, there's a, a Fuse driver for Linux. There's a driver that I don't know if there are packages available, but it's certainly easy to build and install. And I've had really excellent results getting files off an apfs mac volume which is actually quite complicated because they they exist within kind of an lvm framework but um it works great if you need to get files off and maybe put them on your windows machine if you forget to do something you can do all of those things from linux but he finishes up with more about this beginner's guide i'm sure that a beginner's guide would be helpful to a lot of linux curious out here who may now be seeking out alternatives to windows 11 but the thing is that we're not really aimed at beginners, are we? Like we, There's a sort of certain assumed level of knowledge. You can't cater to everyone. So I don't think we're the right people to do that. Yeah, considering the last time I dual-booted a, a Windows Linux machine was probably 2001. Yeah, if it's not KDE, Neon, then you're not going to be able to help with anything, are you? That's an outrageous accusation. On the desktop, of course. I think maybe you're right. I mean, we're, hopefully we're welcoming and inclusive and beginners are just as free to listen to us as anyone else but um yeah, there's lots of great resources for beginners on the internet um and it all works i mean i think that's something that we can reassure steve to say that you can get it all working you can do everything that he's asking about and you know and it's pretty good adventure to start on i think it's hard to know when you've been using it for such a long time that it's hard to know what isn't obvious uh, i think that's the greatest thing somebody you can write or talk about a, a really good beginner's intro guide it's very hard to appreciate things that you just assume people know yeah the curse of knowledge that's it yeah knowledge <laughs> so let's pretend massive inverted commas there <laughs> misery i think is the right word yeah and there's a whole career to be made doing technical writing I think you might know a little bit about that, Graham. Like it's it's not something that anyone can necessarily just do. Yeah, I think that's what great writers can do, is they, they kind of bridge the divide between people who can't see perhaps what beginners can see and 
what beginners need isn't necessarily what experts think they need. And I've, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on it, but it's a really difficult challenge that actually very few people can do really well. Steve did suggest that maybe Lightnut Linux Extra would be a place to explore this. Possibly, but I, I don't know. I, I have this picture of the average listener of ours to be someone who has used Linux for at least three or four years and knows what they're doing and just wouldn't need these explainers and, you know, beginner's guides. And I'm sure there must be something similar. In fact, I'm sure there is. I just can't remember the name of it now, but I'm, I'm sure there is a podcast that's aimed at this. And I'm sure someone will write in to us. But yeah, let us know anyway if this would appeal to you and if you know the name of the thing that I can't remember right now. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when maybe we'll be talking about the news, but it depends what's been happening. We'll have to see. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.